Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing breathing mindfulness meditation. I'm going to discuss with you why we actually do breathing mindfulness meditation, how it can benefit you on this path to enlightenment, and we're going to actually do a session of breathing mindfulness meditation together here on our live stream and using our podcast for those of you guys that are listening over our podcast. So let's get started. Meditation is really something that's gone all throughout society at this point. Many, many, many people all over the world are actually practicing meditation. They're finding it as a nice way to kind of calm the mind, relax the mind, and kind of be a little bit more steady and a little bit more calm and finding some more peacefulness in their life. The style of meditation that is practiced is really depending on where somebody might be learning. There's lots of different apps and lots of different guided meditations and various things all throughout the world that can really kind of turn somebody on to meditation. But today, we're going to be discussing the style of meditation that was taught by Gautama Buddha. Gautama Buddha, or the Buddha, who lived over 2,500 years ago, taught a style of meditation that's used in order to move the mind towards enlightenment or nibbana. Enlightenment is a permanent mental state where the mind resides peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The mind essentially eliminates all the various unwholesome qualities that create this chatter in the mind or the inability to concentrate or focus. It helps to eliminate sadness and anger and frustration and irritation, annoyance. As somebody learns the teachings and moves towards an enlightened mind, they will essentially eliminate discontentedness of mind. The mind will no longer experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these discontent feelings will all be eradicated and eliminated from the mind through the path of enlightenment. And in order to attain enlightenment, we need to actually train the mind. Meditation is one of the primary ways that we actually train the mind. There's other ways as well in terms of learning the teachings and practicing the teachings, 
But meditation is a very central and primary practice as part of Gautama Buddha's teachings that helps to train and gradually move the mind towards this enlightened mental state where the mind permanently resides peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. One of the things that Gautama Buddha taught that is very central, a very central aspect of his teachings is the three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. This three poisons are also sometimes talked about as greed, hatred, and delusion. And I also use unknowing of true reality. It's this first poison of greed or craving that is the primary problem that the Buddha discovered that leads to discontentness of mind. Essentially, the unawakened mind, the unenlightened mind, tends to hold on, it tends to grasp, it tends to seek satisfaction in an outward direction, not realizing that all that the mind really needs is to eliminate this outward seeking and this holding on, this craving, this desire, these attachments, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. If we remove this from the mind, then we essentially eliminate discontentness in the mind. And along with other teachings, the mind becomes more and more and more enlightened where you can experience this permanent mind of peace, calm, serenity, and contentness with joy. This first poison of craving is where the mind has this outward longing, this strong eagerness. It's trying to hold on to things permanently. You can think about this if you've ever had anyone close to you that's passed away, that has died. Then during those times, oftentimes if you haven't attained enlightenment yet, which a lot of people haven't, then your mind probably was sad or maybe frustrated or irritated or annoyed. Some people even get angry when somebody dies. And we have essentially discontent feelings. And the reason why is because the mind has this tendency to hold on and latch on. And it wants things to be permanent. Even though somewhere in our mind we understand that everyone has to die. It's part of being human. We all have to die. Even though we might understand that on an intellectual level, the mind on a much deeper level has this craving, this attachment, this desire, this longing with a strong eagerness to hold on to things permanently. And this is what causes the mind to be discontent. It's what causes all these discontent feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all of these things is because the mind is holding on. It's craving permanence. So the way that we eliminate this discontent mind, aside from a lot of other things, is we work to eliminate this poison of craving or greed where the mind wants to hold on and it has this tendency to just crave and crave and crave and crave and have this outward longing and this strong eagerness for satisfaction and pleasing things. It craves permanence. So breathing mindfulness meditation is one of the primary ways that we train the mind in order to eliminate this 
aspect of the mind that just wants to hold on and hold on and hold on. So today, when I provide you instruction, essentially what we're going to be doing during meditation is as the mind has these various thoughts that come into the mind, we train the mind to just let them go. We're just going to repeatedly train the mind to let it go and let it go and let it go. The reason why is because the way to eliminate this discontent mind, since it's craving and the strong eagerness holding on is what's causing the mind to be discontent, we need to train the mind to let go. We need to train the mind to eliminate this craving or this desire, this attachments, this strong eagerness for everything to be held on to and crave permanence. And one of the ways we do that is with this practice of breathing mindfulness meditation. It's actually a very simple meditation. And you may or may not be meditating this way currently, depending on where you've learned and what you've studied. So today, I want to share with you exactly what the Buddha taught in terms of meditation and specifically breathing mindfulness meditation. I'm going to use some of his actual words in order to help you see exactly what he shared in his teachings about breathing mindfulness meditation. Now, his teachings are compiled in about 45 volumes of books because he taught for 45 years during his life. So he had a very long time to make sure people truly understood his teachings and attained this mental state of enlightenment. And the more enlightened someone becomes, not only do they experience peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentness of mind with joy, but you also experience a great deal of focus, concentration, and clarity of mind along with memorization. So during his lifetime, people memorized his teachings for a very long period of time before they actually ended up writing them down. And part of what I study is what they ultimately wrote down many years after his death and has been handed down to us to this point. And his words are very succinct and very clear. And all of his teachings are timeless because his teachings are based on training the mind to eliminate this discontentness and reach this mental state of enlightenment. So his teachings that he taught 2,500 years ago, they're not based on any particular time frame in history because he was training the mind and teaching people how to awaken the mind. And the human mind hasn't changed in all of these years. It still functions in the same way. So his teachings that he taught 2,500 years ago are just as applicable as they were then as they are now. So these next few text that I share with you, it's actually his words and what he actually taught. This is actually a text that I've shared on previous talks that I've done on breathing mindfulness meditation, where I'm actually sharing just kind of a snippet of what the Buddha was teaching in terms of breathing mindfulness meditation and what we should develop in order to move the mind gradually to this enlightened mind state. And here you can see that he's talking very directly, very specifically. There's many paragraphs before this, and I just kind of cut it off here so that you can focus on what it is that we're talking about today. He says here, having based himself on these five things, the bhikkhu, and the bhikkhu is the monks or his, 
his followers, the people that are learning from him. So essentially, having based yourself on the prior five things that he's talked about, a student should develop further another four things. And the first one is unattractiveness should be developed to abandon lust or central desire or craving for uh, sexual contact. This is a type of meditation that is a specialized style of meditation that is only used for people who have a strong craving for sexual contact. So if somebody has three, four, five, six different partners that they're having sex with multiple times, or they're having craving for pornography, or they're having a lot of challenges with sexual cravings that are coming up, there's actually meditations that we can prescribe in order to help somebody bring that craving down because it tends to make the mind discontent. And remember, the Buddhist teachings aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong. It's always about what's causing the mind to be discontent. And as long as there's this excessive craving for sexual contact, it's going to cause the mind to be discontent. So this is one of the meditations that we can prescribe, and not everybody needs that one. So we don't normally teach that unless there's a specialized situation where somebody needs it. The next meditation is loving kindness meditation should be developed to abandon ill will. This is the style of meditation that's used to abandon that second poison of hatred or anger, the fetter of ill will, because this essentially causes a lot of problems in our life. When we have hatred or hostility or anger towards people, it causes rough relationships. We tend to put up walls around us and we feel like we can't get along with others. So by training the mind to have active goodwill or loving kindness through meditation, it works to abandon ill will or hatred or anger, or hostility, frustration towards other people. And then here's a third line, which is what I was really interested in having you see, because this is going to be my instructions to you during our guided meditation today. Gautama Buddha says here, mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. Now I call that breathing mindfulness meditation, but here in the translation, it's called mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. Essentially, while we're meditating, we're going to be focusing on the breath, and as the various thoughts come into the mind, we're going to essentially cut them off or let them go. And this is going to train the mind to eliminate that tendency of the mind to hold on to things. And the more and more you train the mind in this direction, the more peaceful the mind will become, the more calm, the more serene, the more content, the more joyful, because that's not holding on to these hurtful things and other things that come into our mind. Now, the Buddha goes on here with some other things that we won't get into today, but I really wanted to focus you on that one sentence there. Mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. Okay, this is the Buddha's instructions of how to actually do breathing mindfulness meditation. I also wanted to share something with you that I haven't shared previously, which is something that I brought out of his teachings as well. This is a teaching of essentially why we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and what the goal is. 
Here he talks about what breathing mindfulness meditation leads to, the benefits of breathing mindfulness meditation. He says, bhikkhus, essentially his students, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to disenchantment, to dispassion. Dispassion is kind of an elimination of over excessive emotions, bringing the mind to kind of an even temperament, okay? It leads exclusively to dischantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? He tends to teach this way where he asks his students a question. And then sometimes he waits for them to reply, but in other times he just answers it. He's looking to create an inquisitive mind on the side of his students so his students aren't just sitting there kind of bored and just barely listening. He's kind of asking questions to invoke thought and invoke reflection on his students' part. So he says, what is that one thing that essentially leads exclusively to dischantment? to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness of breathing. He's talking about meditation here. And previously in other parts of his teaching, he talks about a lot of other things that leads to enlightenment and that needs to be practiced. But here he's really calling out breathing mindfulness meditation, which we're going to be learning and practicing today. And he goes on. He says, this is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to dischantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So this is what he's describing here. He's prescribing and encouraging people to practice mindfulness of breathing. And here he explains very clearly, it leads to peace. What he's referring to as direct knowledge is that third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality. The reason why the mind is sleeping or unawake or unenlightened is because we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the truth, we don't have the direct knowledge of the truth of how the mind works. In the unenlightened state, we go around and we typically blame other people for why we're angry or why we're frustrated. You know, my, my partner, my husband, my wife, my kid, my coworker, they made me angry. No, we make ourselves angry. And the more you study Gautama Buddha's teachings and you practice them, essentially also practicing meditation, you will get direct knowledge, which leads to enlightenment. Because the more direct knowledge you have, you will see that the teachings are truth. Gautama Buddha's teachings are not based on belief. You don't believe what he says. You don't believe anything that he says. And you don't believe anything that I say. What you do is you learn the teachings and you practice them and then you see the truth for yourself. That's direct knowledge. That's how the mind becomes more wise 
and it awakens because it has more and more knowledge. So through direct knowledge, through meditating and improving the condition of the mind, you get direct knowledge. You understand the truth more and more and more and more. Because then he goes on to say it leads to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And that's the goal in Gautama Buddha's teachings, is helping people to reach this permanent mental state of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentness with joy, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And in order to do that, you need to practice the teachings so that you can see the truth for yourself. So today, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation so that you can see the truth for yourself that it 100% does improve the quality of the mind and the condition of the mind through an actual session of meditation. But before we do that, I would just like to pause and see if we have any questions on anything that we've discussed so far so that I can help answer those questions before we move into our actual meditation session. Hi, David. I have a question about this instruction of cutting off thoughts. In the past, when I've shared this with people, and I know this is the same for you, there's been some pushback because other times you hear instructions like just allow thoughts to come and go. Or we might hear, for example, it's not about stopping thoughts. I'd like to hear from you how you would respond to that kind of query. Yeah, what people misunderstand when they see that the Buddha talked about cutting off thoughts, they think what he's saying is eliminating thoughts and that somehow there won't be any more thoughts. And like literally you're cutting it off and there's no more thoughts whatsoever. But essentially what he's saying is let go of the thoughts. So cutting off the thoughts means let go of the thoughts. So as the thoughts move into the mind, you let them go. Or the way that this was translated is cut them off. So as the thoughts of the past come into the mind during meditation, you cut them off. You let them go. You focus on the breath. As the thoughts of the future come into the mind during meditation, you cut them off. You let them go. As ideas and thoughts and perceptions come into the mind during meditation, you cut them off. You let them go. But there's going to be thoughts, especially early on, there's going to be thoughts. So you're never going to get to a point where you completely eliminate thoughts because the mind is going to have thoughts. But what happens is as the mind progresses in its training, you get less and less and less thoughts. You don't get the bombardment of thoughts that people tend to get when they first start a meditation practice. They tend to get bombarded with thoughts. And we don't want to label those thoughts because that's still holding on to them. So we want to let them go. And as the mind moves closer and closer to enlightenment, the thoughts become less and less and less and less. And you get to what the Buddha called single-mindedness or singleness of mind. That during meditation, you can have long periods of time where all you focus on is the breath and there are no thoughts. It's just the breath because the breath is the present moment. So now after you've done a lot of meditation over a long period of time, you get to this singleness of mind where you just focus on the breath. You've already practiced letting go of the thoughts or cutting those off. 
you get to this singleness of mind where it's just the breath for these long periods of time. But even during that time, you can have a particular thought that might come to the mind. And what happens is the more you clear out all the clutter and all the unwholesome thoughts and holding on to the past and holding on to the future, what happens is you tend to get beneficial thoughts. Sometimes during meditation, but even outside of meditation, as you're going through your day, rather than getting bombarded by a clutter of thoughts, if you've trained your mind really well in meditation over multiple sessions, you get very beneficial thoughts that can be helpful to what it is that you're working on or the conversations that you're having or the job or the role that you're fulfilling at that particular time. So you'll always have thoughts. You won't literally cut them off and eliminate them permanently forever. That's not the goal. But if you can associate this cutting off thoughts with letting them go, I think people will understand that language much better. Thanks. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think reassuring for a lot of people to hear that we're never going to eliminate thoughts. That's not necessarily the goal here. You need thoughts. Um, Yeah, they can be quite useful sometimes. Uh, a lot of them can be very useful, but there's also these thoughts that are just born out of craving. The mind just wants to get somewhere, right? And so what really we're doing is we're not stopping thoughts directly, but what, what you're saying, we are seeing the thought and making a decision. This is not wholesome. This is not skillful. Bring the attention back to the breath. That's what I need to focus on right now. Yeah, just let it go. And, and I actually like this language of cut off the thoughts because where it becomes very useful if you've done that in meditation over multiple periods of time and you're working your way towards enlightenment and you get into a conversation where something's happening that is displeasing to the mind and a little bit of irritation rises or a little bit of frustration starts rising, you just think, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off. Now let it go works the same way But cut it off is like a much more abrupt kind of thing. And I've shared this with my son, who's now seven and a half years old. And one time I parallel parked on a busy street and I needed to walk across the street in order to get some food from a restaurant that we had ordered to go. And I said, "Okay, now you stay in the car. Daddy's going to go to get some food. And I had previously asked him if he would like to come with me. And he said, no, it's pretty hot. I want to stay in the air conditioning. I said, "Okay, now you stay in the car. I'm going to go get the food. It took me three minutes or five minutes. And then I came back to the car and he said, you know what, Daddy, that cutting off the thoughts that you taught me, it works really, really well, because while you were in that restaurant, I was thinking of coming to see you and I was going to try to cross the busy street but I just cut that thought off, daddy. I just cut it off. And I was like, perfect. So I think this cutting off the thoughts is, I don't want to say aggressive, but it's much more abrupt. It's like, yes, cut it off. So when you have that frustration or irritation or annoyance, or even like my son, the thought came into his mind, maybe I'll go see daddy in the restaurant. And he knew that busy traffic. He's like, you know what? Let me just cut that off. And it works. So if people understand what the Buddha is describing here in terms of cutting off thoughts, I think it can be much more directly applied in meditation and then outside of meditation, which is really the goal because we can't meditate our way to enlightenment. We have to practice 
in daily life. You know, meditation is maybe 30 minutes, an hour, two hours of our day on a particular day. Who knows how long people decide to meditate? But this concept and this teaching, this practice of cutting off thoughts, if we get really good at that during meditation, then outside of meditation, we can apply the same exact thing when we feel certain discontent feelings coming up to the surface, we can just cut it off. Yes, I also find the wording of cut it off very useful because it feels proactive. Yes. We're applying a, a, a small amount of energy, a little bit of effort, not a huge amount, but just a bit. Cut it off at the root. I like that word proactive, right? That's, that's essentially what cut off the thoughts is. is. It, it's a proactive way of as soon as you see that discontent feeling coming to the surface, just cut it off. And if you do that enough, what happens is eventually you get to the point where you, the discontent feeling doesn't even arise, right? So like prior to learning these teachings, we were all just getting mad. We were getting frustrated. We were getting irritated. We're blaming it on everyone else. We think everyone else is the problem. And that's the unenlightened mind. And then, oh, we become aware of the Buddhist teachings. Oh, I'm actually causing this discontent mind. It's from my craving. It's from my attachments. And I can train the mind to let it go and eliminate it. Okay, let me try this. Let me work on this. Oh, wow, I actually can do that. But even though you're aware of it, the mind's still undergoing training and it's still going to get frustrated. It's still going to get a little irritated. It's still going to get annoyed. And in those situations, if you cut off the thoughts and you do that over multiple times in multiple situations, eventually you'll notice more and more that a particular event that two months ago or two weeks ago, or I've had some students even two or three days ago that would have drove them a little bit you know, bonkers and pretty frustrated, they were able to cut it off. I've actually taught classes where we've been three days into the class and somebody came into the class and said, you know, David, I got an email this morning that if I would have got that last week, my mind would have been so sad and so disappointed and I would have been frustrated. But the last two or three days studying with you and doing this meditation, it didn't bother me at all. I was able to just let it go and it didn't cause any frustration or any sadness at all. So you'll notice this slowly but surely that when frustration or discontentness or sadness or whatever arises, you'll be able to cut it off, but then slowly, gradually over time, it won't even arise. You'll notice that it just won't even come to the surface at all. And that's the real beauty. If you do enough work of cutting it off and cutting it off during meditation, and then you apply it in daily life, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off, then you get to the point where you just don't even feel it at all. And this is what I talk about when I say, once you realize that you're causing your own anger and you're causing your own frustration, why would you ever do that to yourself? It's almost like stabbing yourself with a knife, right? So once you gain enough wisdom and you see truly that you are causing all these discontent feelings, your practice starts to really progress very quickly because you kind of discover like, why would I ever do this to myself? You know, even though you might feel a little bit of irritation in there, it's like, no, I don't even want, I'm not even interested in getting angry because I don't want to do that to myself. I don't like how that feels, right? I remember times in the past where I used to be so, so angry in certain situations, I would literally shake. 
right? And I would literally be exhausted after the whole situation. And back then, I didn't realize I was doing it to myself. But then once you realize you're doing all that to yourself, and it's like, why would you ever do that to yourself? And you, you learn very quickly and through this meditation and applying it in daily life that you don't have to do this to yourself, that you can eliminate all these discontent feelings. Yes, we have a couple of follow-up questions on Facebook. I'm going to combine them into one question. So Lisa asks, denying discontent thoughts, is that form of denial and by not healing bad thoughts from the past, can that prove harmful in the future? Doesn't one need to evaluate the thought to consider whether or not further action is required? And then we also had a follow-up from Jaroslav. I'll just um, ask that as well. He said, what if the thought comes back after meditation? Does that mean I didn't let go of it completely? Yeah, so two different questions, but I'll answer them both. Let's um, answer the second one first. So yes, if during meditation, if a thought comes up and you let it go and you're able to get back to the breath and then later after meditation, it comes up again, then yeah, it hasn't been let go yet. And this is why the mind needs gradual training and gradual progress. One of the biggest misunderstandings about Gautama Buddha's life is that he sat under a tree and then he instantly became enlightened. This isn't what he talks about at all in his teachings. He talks about gradual training. And we know it took him six years to attain enlightenment. So if you're having a certain thought in meditation and you let it go during meditation and it comes up later, Okay, you haven't done anything wrong. You're not a bad person. The mind is just holding on. That's what it tends to do. So you just dedicate yourself to a regular, consistent meditation practice. And the more and more and more you do that, the more you will notice that the mind will let go of these thoughts and put them in the past. Because that's what's important to the second question for Lisa. Lisa, I was involved in previous times of my life with different therapists and counselors and things like this where they always want me to relive the situation and bring everything back up to the surface and re-experience everything. I'm sure they have a certain reason for why they do that. But from my experience, those things never allowed me to attain this permanent mental state of peace, calm, serenity, contentness with joy. It just brought everything back up to the surface and nothing productive really happened for me during those particular times. But the Buddhist teachings of teaching me how to eliminate those thoughts and put them in the past and let them go, even I have the memories of these traumatic events or harmful things that I did to people or people did to me or what have you, even though I have those memories, they don't cause my mind to be discontent because I'm not holding on to them. I know that those things are there. I know that certain things happened to me in the past. I don't just forget those, but I'm not holding on to those memories with resentment or frustration or irritation. So you need to let go of certain things, of, of all these things that have happened in the past um, because they don't serve any good purpose. You can't do anything with them. Anything that's happened in the past, it's in the past. You can't change it. You can't modify it. You can't go back and do anything differently. It happened. It's in the past. All that matters is this present moment and getting the mind to 
reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And the way to do that is train the mind to be in the present moment. If the mind's in the past, it's going to be discontent. Let's just say we had harmful things that happened to us in the past. If we allow the mind to dwell there of all these sad and horrifying and harmful things that happened to us, the mind's going to be discontent because it's going to be holding on to all those harmful things. And in this present moment, the mind is still discontent because it's holding on to all that stuff in the past. But if we train to let it go, then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content now in the present moment. And conversely, if we had a lot of pleasant things that happened to us in the past, let's say if somebody was really, really rich and wealthy and they really enjoyed all the pleasant lifestyle that they had, and now today they no longer have that same lifestyle. If their mind holds on to those pleasant feelings of the past and craving that and wanting that and trying to recreate it, the mind's going to make decisions that aren't necessarily wholesome and it's not going to be content in the present moment. It's still going to be longing with this strong eagerness for these pleasant feelings in the past. And this is what's causing the mind to be discontent. So if we allow the mind to hold on to traumatic or harmful things that happened in the past or even pleasant things that happened in the past, then the mind's going to be discontent. So by letting those things go and training the mind to be in the present moment, then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Thanks, David. I think we're ready to move on. Okay, so let's actually go into a meditation session. So if you've never meditated before, or if you've meditated with me before, we typically start off in the seated position. And the seated position is a common place to learn because it's very comfortable. It's very easy to start off in a seated position. So if you're sitting in a chair or in some other kind of supported device, just sit comfortably with your lower body nice and comfortable and your feet either flat on the floor or crossed, however you would like to do it. There's not just one specific way to do this in terms of your body because everything's impermanent in your body and my body's a little bit different. So I'm going to give you a bunch of different options. So if you're sitting on the floor, you might want to cross your legs, but not too tightly because you don't want to cut off the circulation. So just sit cross leg with your legs kind of lightly folded so that you can get circulation through the legs. And then if you're in a chair, just sit comfortably with your lower body, comfortable in a chair with your feet either flat on the floor or cross leg, up to you. If at any point during the meditation you feel any pain, just move the body slightly and get into a comfortable position. The upper body should be in the middle, not slouched and not real rigid. It should be in the middle, supported with your upper body weight, with your own muscles. You should be supporting your upper body with your own muscles. This is important because that's what maintains the attentiveness and alertness of the mind. I'm in a chair talking with you now. So if I happen to lean back and kind of rest my upper body up against the back of the chair, the mind's going to have a tendency to turn off. And in order to train the mind, we need it to be attentive, alert, and focused. So the way that we do that is by using the muscles in the upper body 
in order to engage those muscles and support the upper body, it tends to keep the mind in a more active, attentive mode so that you can actually train it. The hands and the arms, there's lots of different options here. Gautama Buddha, he put his right hand over his left with his thumbs together. So if you put the back of your right hand on top of your left palm with your thumbs together, and then put the back of your left hand in your lap, if that feels comfortable for you, then you can do that. But if that doesn't feel comfortable, place your palms on your lap, place your palms on your knees, place them on the armrest of your chair, whatever's comfortable. What we're doing here is what's called setting up mindfulness in front of us. This is an instruction that the Buddha gives when he describes how to do meditation. He says that we should set up a mindfulness in front of us. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. So if we're going to train the mind to focus on the breath with this active, attentive mind, we need to have awareness of mind. So what he says is prior to meditation, set up mindfulness in front of you. So start becoming aware of the mind. And the mind is the boss, the body is the employee. So the way to get to the boss is to go through the employee. The body being the employee, we need to make the employee comfortable. We need to make it satisfied, but not luxurious. We need to keep the employee attentive. So we keep the body attentive and comfortable, but not luxurious. So by maintaining this comfortable position with the body, we can make the employee comfortable, i.e. making the body comfortable. We can get to the boss, which is the mind. So once you're in position with your body, what you're going to do is you're just going to close the eyes and breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Just a nice natural breath. Breathing in in out. I'm going to let you focus on the breath, breathing in and out, and just bring the mind to the sound of the breath entering the nose or the sensation of the air entering the nose over the skin. As I leave you here to focus on the breath, I'm going to do some chanting. And if you would like to do chanting along with me, you're welcome to do that for those of you guys that have learned the chanting. And then after I'm done chanting, I'll come back with some more guidance to help you guys get deeper into meditation. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawandang Apiwate Ami Sawakato Tammo Tamang Namasami Supatipano Makawato Savakasanko 
setting up mindfulness in front of us, becoming aware of the mind and aware of the breath. So I'd like you to just continue to focus the mind on the breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Don't try to control the breath or force it. Just a nice, natural breath. Just observe the breath. Use the mind to focus on the breath and observe it. Is it short? Is it long? Is it hurried? Just focus on a nice, natural breath coming in through the nose and out through the nose. The breath is the present moment. So we're training the mind to focus only on the present moment, the breath. As you're focusing on the breath, the mind being the mind, it's going to want to wander. It's going to want to take you to the past and think about all those pleasurable things or all those harmful things that happened in the past. Just cut that off. Let it go. You can't change the past. There's nothing there. Just cut it off. Let it go. 
and bring the mind to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Next, the mind might want to take you to the future. Wants to plan the future. Wants to figure out what you're going to do tomorrow or next week. Or even right after you're done meditating. Has a list. It wants to create lots of things. Thinks about the harmful things or the pleasant things. Just cut it off. Let it go. Bring the mind to the breath, the present moment. The mind might have thoughts or ideas or perceptions. Just let it go. Cut it off. Bring the mind to the breath. The mind can be peaceful in the present moment. It can be calm, serene, content with joy in the present moment. So wherever you notice the mind going to the past, to the future, having thoughts or ideas or perceptions, Just let them go. Bring the mind to the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. You have nowhere to go. You have nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time. Just let it all go and focus on the breath, the present moment.
Just kind of slowly bring your awareness back to open eyes. You need to stretch a little bit, wake up a little bit. All right. So, what questions do you guys have of anything we've discussed either in this class or previous classes? Anything that's coming up? in your meditation, either today or during your normal practice when you're doing this on your own, or just any questions that you're reading about or thinking about, things that are in your mind, just want to open the floor up to any and all questions. I have a question from Messiah. Uh, Messiah asks, sometimes during meditation, I feel like I'm dreaming or in a dreamlike state, but I'm not actually falling asleep. Can you explain this at all? This is just the mind being the mind. Uh, it's normal. Uh, you haven't done anything wrong. In fact, you're probably getting pretty deep in your meditation. It's 
very normal, very typical. The mind will produce all kinds of various things, either during meditation or outside of meditation. And what you're doing in meditation is you're training the mind so that you can control it. So this dreamlike state that you're experiencing in meditation right now is just where you're at with the mind. But the more and more that you train it, the more you'll be able to control it and just focus on the breath and only the breath. But it's going to take time. So this is normal. It's what the mind does. The more you train it, you'll be able to control it. So rather than allowing the thoughts to control you, you learn how to control the thoughts. And this is going back to what you asked, Max, previously about cutting off the thoughts, that by learning to cut off the thoughts and training the mind in that way, then you learn that you can literally control the thoughts. And this is really beneficial because in daily life, you will be able to then control your thoughts. Thanks, David. I find very useful in your teaching and meditation is this emphasis on practice. Because we can talk and talk and talk about meditation, can't we? And sometimes that can be burdensome because we're then in the meditation, you're thinking, right, what do I do now? What do I do now? The only thing I find we need to remember is bring the attention back to the breath. And touching on what we said earlier, is it fair to say it's not so much about becoming concentrated, but that happens as a byproduct of cutting off thoughts? Yes, this is a very good clarification that I'm glad you brought up, is that it's not the actual meditation itself that's creating the clarity, that's creating the focus and the concentration, the peacefulness, the calmness. What's happening is the mind is being trained more and more and more so that you can control it. And with knocking down the craving, knocking down the clinging where the mind wants to hold on to everything, then the mind isn't burdened with all of this heaviness of carrying all this craving, desire, attachment. When the mind's not holding on to all of this longing and strong eagerness, then you eliminate the stress, you eliminate the burden, you eliminate the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the irritation. All of this stuff gradually starts to fall away. And in fact, one of Gautama Buddha's descriptions when he talks about what enlightenment is, is he says it's laying down the stress. He also says it's laying down the burden. So what you'll notice is that in the unenlightened state, the mind is cluttered, it's holding on, it's got all these longing, it's got this strong eagerness, it's got this craving to do certain things, to fulfill certain things, it's looking at the future, it's looking at the past, it's having all these thoughts and ideas, and the mind is burdened. And the more that you train the mind and then be able to control it, then you lay down the burden, you lay down the stress. The mind isn't burdened with carrying around all this heaviness. The mind in the body becomes very light, very light. It's almost like a feather. Um, you know, sometimes after a hard day where you've experienced a lot of stress and mental anguish, you know how sometimes your body is just like feels like you've gained 500 pounds and you're just carrying around this heaviness on your shoulders and 
in your legs and in your feet and you just feel like you can't even walk one more step because the body is is so heavy where this is coming from is the mind because the boss is the mind the body's the employee if the boss is unwell if the boss is not content then the, the employee is not going to be content either. The, the boss is not well, the employee is not going to be well. So this is why we feel that heaviness in the body, that burden on our shoulders, and that when we feel stress, people usually feel it across the neck and shoulders. That's all being produced by the mind, and it's coming down into the physical body. So that's why by training the mind, training the boss, the employee is going to be much more comfortable much 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 more comfortable and one of the other things about the buddhist teachings that i would like to touch on is the buddhist teachings are very simple very basic very clear very concise the people that he was teaching during his lifetime were essentially farmers and shopkeepers the language that he spoke in it was an oral language it wasn't a written language. So for all intensive purposes, the people during that time frame were illiterate, right? They couldn't read and write because there was no script for the language that he was speaking in. But their life was much more simple, much more basic. So they didn't have as many things going on in their life. And they could just take their time, take in the teachings, apply the teachings. So he taught in a very simple very basic, very clear and concise way so that when people listen to his talks, they could then carry it with them in daily life and apply it in daily life. Sometimes what happens when people start to encounter the Buddhist teachings and they start to really understand the true Buddhist teachings is they're like, wow, this is just so simple, so basic, like what you've just described. You didn't say it this way, Max, but you know, it's just very simple. Just focus on the breath. Cut off the thoughts, just focus on the breath. It really is that simple. But what happens is the mind craves, it has this longing, this strong eagerness for this intellectual teachings of this sage, this Buddha, this man who lived 2,500 years ago. And we think that there should be all this deep, profound, eloquent language, you know, this poetry of words. But the Buddha actually kind of joked in some of his talks where he said some people describe his teachings with poetry. And he says people are going to be more apt to listen to those words and those poetic words than his own words, which are essentially very simple, very basic, very clear and very concise. There's no interpretation in his teachings because he talked very clear, very concise we don't have to go out and interpret or figure out what he said because he just said it so clearly. Like in this teaching right here, he just said it, you know, very, very clearly about what he was actually teaching. He said, students, essentially, there's one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to dischantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. Doesn't get any more clear than that. So oftentimes when we're studying, the mind may crave this, you know, eloquent, poetic words, but he's just saying it very clear, very concise, because 
his 45 years of life, there was lots and lots of people who became enlightened, but he was leaving behind teachings that more and more and more people could become enlightened after he died. So his goal wasn't to make these teachings very complex, very convoluted, and very difficult for people to grasp. You know, he didn't have ego where he was trying to make himself sound so amazing and so wonderful. The more complex that he makes his sentences, maybe the more intelligent people will think I am. This isn't how he spoke. He spoke very clear, very concise, very direct, so that people could get the understanding of the teachings, they could practice those teachings, and they could get the results during his lifetime and then for many, many, many years afterwards. So, yes, his teachings on meditation are very simple, very basic, and all of his teachings are this way. Even when he talks about gamma in the cycle of rebirth, which are two of the challenging teachings for Westerners to understand, which is the natural law of gamma and the cycle of rebirth, because we're not taught this growing up in our culture. But even when he talked about this, he talked about it very clear, very concise, very direct, because the goal is, is once you understand his teachings, you go out and practice it and see if it's truth or not. So you don't have to believe him. And he wanted to make sure you understood the teachings so clearly and so concisely that there would be no misunderstanding and that by you going out and practicing, you could see whether his teachings are true or not. And with you guys practicing breathing mindfulness meditation right now, you should have a bit of truth right now. You should be able to see either that your mind is a little bit more peaceful, more calm, more serene, more content, or you might see that your mind is quite busy and there is a lot of chatter there. And that's beneficial too. But you need to practice, as Max is saying, you have to practice not just meditation, but learning the teachings and applying them in daily life so that you can see that they actually work. Yes, this really is a life practice. And learning is a vital part of that. But learning itself can be very pleasant. We like to learn things. And in our culture, especially, learning is really encouraged. And so we often feel quite good about ourselves if we're doing a lot of reading, a lot of learning. And beyond the point, that can just become another attachment, like you've been saying here. And that can actually be counterproductive beyond a point, made of thinking too much about what is it I do in this moment, you know, what is I do in this moment, rather than just getting down to it and practicing. Yeah, I mean, the Buddhist teachings, they were really revolutionary at his time, and, and they still are today, because during his lifetime, what people were doing is they were paying money to priests to go pray to God on their behalf. And they were taught, and what they believed is that they couldn't pray and have a connection with God because they were just kind of a lower caste of people. And they were just paying money to a priest to go pray on their behalf. And when the Buddha came in and said, hold on a second, you can actually attain a better life now, right? Because there was a lot of corruption there. You know, today it was a certain price. Tomorrow it was a different price. The next day it was a different price. So the Buddha's teaching was you can actually learn what he had to share. You can actually practice that. You can see that what he's teaching is true. 
and you can see that the condition of your mind is improving and improving and improving that once where you became very angry and very hostile now you just get frustrated now you get irritated now you get a little annoyed now you just kind of don't like it that much and now all of a sudden your mind is peaceful and you can see it for yourself where you're not just handing over money to somebody and letting them go do the work for you and somehow that's going to benefit your life he was encouraging people to actually do the work themselves the same way that I do is if you do the work, if you do the learning, if you apply the teachings and you see that they're truth, you're going to see the improvements slowly but surely as the mind gradually awakens. And that's the beauty in his teachings is that he didn't come and say, I'm going to promise you all these things and I will do all of this for you. He didn't say that. He said, you essentially have to do the work. And by you doing the work, you're going to realize the benefits. And that's how people knew he was a Buddha or awakened, enlightened, because he was always calm. He was always peaceful. He was always, you know, joyful. And when they learned his teachings, their mind attained that same mental state. And the more and more people that study with him, the more and more people could see for themselves that their mind was improving. We have a question from Aiden. Aiden asks, my eyes heavily roll up into my head when I'm in deep meditation. Is this normal? It's not abnormal. I would say let go of being aware of what your eyes are doing and just focus on the breath. If your eyes roll back in your head, then so be it. Just let it happen. And But don't put your awareness there with your eyes. Put your awareness of mind with the breath. And whatever happens with the eyes just happens with the eyes. Just let it be. I've been experiencing something similar actually, which is that when I feel concentration is coming, uh, for some reason to my attention tends to go to my eyes and I've actually been experiencing good attention. I don't think it's an issue. I think it's something that will just pass just like many other things. But I feel that maybe I'm overstraining a little bit and maybe, maybe that's what's giving rise to it. Yeah, some things that can happen while you're meditating. Let me just go through a few of these. So if they're happening for you or if they do happen in the future, that you won't be disheartened or think that anything's wrong. Sometime when you're meditating, you can have like what Aiden has where the eyes you know, roll back. You can actually have crying. Uh, some people have crying because as the emotions are coming, especially if they're painful thoughts and you're letting them go, you can actually have crying and kind of releasing you know, watery eyes and just you can have sobbing during meditation or it, it can just be a release of tears as you're actually meditating. And that's a good thing. Just let it go. Don't try to hold on to that emotion that comes up. Just let it go and release it. You can have various visions, hallucinations. You can have dreams. You can have lights, various lights that you'll see in the mind. You can feel like your head's expanding right? Like, like this big pressure in your head and then it's kind of going back down. This isn't normal, but it's not abnormal and nothing is permanent. So these things might come up, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen every single time. So if you're noticing various sensations in the body, in the head, if you're noticing certain visual lights, if you're noticing crying, if you're noticing anything, Whatever's going on in your meditation, it's all impermanent. So these things will come and go. 
and just let them come and let them pass and just recognize them as impermanent and more and more and more and more the mind will become stable it will become unshakable this is another way that the buddha described enlightenment is the mind becomes unshakable where you know so much of the truth about how the mind works and you've trained it so well that the mind never gets discontent the mind doesn't get angry it doesn't get frustrated it doesn't feel guilt or shame or fear or boredom or loneliness or sadness or jealousy the mind is unshakable it's just got this steadiness this calmness this composure the mind is permanently in the middle you might laugh and joke somebody says a joke you bring the mind right back you see something like oh that's unfortunate that happened you bring the mind right back the mind doesn't dwell in the sadness and it doesn't dwell in the happiness You've trained it so well that you can just bring it right back to the middle. And this is one of the benefits of enlightenment is that you will no longer experience this shaking up of the mind. The mind won't be shaken. It will be unshakable. So these kind of things are very common during meditation, the various sensations in the body. Sometimes while you're in meditation, you might feel a certain sensation on the skin or the surface of the skin. Or like last night I had something, must have been a piece of dust or something that landed on my nose. And that's a very sensitive spot, you know, your nose. And if that happens, what I would suggest you do is notice how that is impermanent. How you feel that sensation come and then it will be there and your mind might go to it. But then train the mind to come right back to the breath and bring it right back to the breath. And then eventually that sensation will be gone, right? And you might not be able to do this with something as strong as something that hits on your nose or you know, something on your neck, but do it for as long as you can, even if it's three seconds or five seconds. And then if eventually you're like, oh, I just got to itch it, then, then itch it. But then the next time that happens, try to go longer, try to go eight seconds or 10 or 15. And what you're going to notice is more and more when all these sensations come up in the body, you'll be able to control the mind where you can just be calm, peaceful and content no matter what happens. And this is very good training for the mind, because if you can do that with sensations in the body, now if you fall and hurt yourself, you can control the mind and you recognize that there's pain there, but you won't be attached to it. Or if something happens in daily life where somebody's being hostile towards you or unkind or unpolite, you don't allow the mind to go there. You can just let it go. So if you feel sensations or lights or these various things like Aiden talked about with the eyes going back, just keep bringing the mind back to the breath. And this is very good training to show you that you can control the mind anytime something arises you don't have to send the mind there. You can bring it back to the breath. You can just let it go. Very, very good training for the mind. I have a question from Erin. Erin asks, I'm still confused with meditation. I close my eyes, focus on my breathing, and although random thoughts drift in and out, but after 15 minutes, what am I supposed to feel? You're not supposed to feel anything. You're not supposed to want anything or desire anything. There's no, you know, huge sensation that's going to come over the body. What you're doing is you're just training the mind to let go of the thoughts. And doing this more and more and more and more, you'll 
train the mind, be able to control the mind, and then that's going to be beneficial for you in daily life that you can now control the mind. So by letting the thoughts go in meditation, it's training the mind to let go when somebody says something unkind or unpolite, you can just let it go. It doesn't bother you. Or if you see something happen that is maybe normally troublesome, you can just let it go. Or if a thought while you're in a conversation with your boss, if a thought from the past comes up, then you can just let it go. Or if yesterday your boss was angry with you, then today when you see them, you can smile and just let it go and just move on to the next part of life. So there's no kind of you know zapping or, well, wow, I'm done with meditation now. It's actually just a steady, consistent training of the mind. Sometimes I think about it as like a bucket and you're scooping water into the bucket. Every time you meditate, you're just training the mind better and better and better. So you're just adding water to the bucket. So sometimes you put two or three scoops in. Okay, I've got some water. Next time you put 10 scoops in. Yeah, I've got some water. You know, there's no big excitement or anything at the end of it. It's just a dedicated, consistent training session of the mind. I have a follow up to that, which is can the mind ever feel the same way twice? I have my own ideas, but interested to hear your thoughts. Um, I think it can. I mean, there's definitely times where you'll finish meditation and you'll feel very peaceful. You may even have a very good run of meditation for like a week or two or three where you'll have a really good run. And every time you're meditating, you're getting deep, really deep in meditation. You're feeling that stillness of mind. You're feeling calm. These are some things, Aaron, that you might feel at the end of meditation, feeling calm, feeling stillness, feeling like, wow, you've really made some progress. You've really had some breakthroughs. And then a week, two, three weeks later, boom, like something's going on in your life or something's going on in the mind and you're not getting the same quality of meditation. So you can actually have kind of a good run of meditation and then you can have a good period where you don't feel like you're making much benefit. And this is where you can't get attached and you can't crave any particular thing during meditation. This is what I was getting to with Aaron is don't crave any particular thing. Don't crave to accomplish anything. Don't have a longing or a strong eagerness for a particular thing to happen during meditation. Just stay dedicated and consistent to your meditation practice. Sometimes it'll go really well. You'll feel like you made a lot of benefit and that can happen repeatedly. Or sometimes you don't and you feel like, wow, like I just sat here for 15, 20, 30 minutes and my mind was just busy and chattering where before you felt like your mind was pretty empty and pretty peaceful. But what I would say to you is that the benefit is actually the same because if you sit down in meditation and your mind becomes very peaceful, very still, very calm, okay, you can notice that and that's the benefit that you're maybe looking for. But if you sit in meditation and it becomes very busy, very hectic, and you're noticing that your mind's very busy, that's beneficial for you as well because now you know what's going on in the mind and that it's very busy and very hectic. And during those times, you might choose to do more meditation, more frequency. You might choose to engage in certain activities during the day that are less burdensome for the mind because your mind is so chattery. So sitting down in meditation for 5, 10, 20, 30, however long minutes, and you realize the mind's busy and you didn't feel like you really accomplished anything, 
that's actually an accomplishment to know that your mind's really busy and then you can do something with that maybe do more meditation more frequent more long or maybe change your daily schedule about what you're planning to do that day based on what you've discovered about the mind yes and the other salient point here about this being a, a life practice is that meditation is just one part of that practice there's yes. a lot that goes on outside of meditation as well yeah, you know, just like with some other traditions, you know, sometimes people feel like they can just kneel and pray and then everything's going to be fine, right? Where some people feel like all they have to do is meditate for 15 minutes a day and then they walk outside and they feel like everything should be glorious and everything should be wonderful. But like when I met you, Max, you were meditating daily, I think, pretty much but you didn't have the teachings to understand what to do in your life practice and what happens beyond meditation. So even if someone has a dedicated, consistent meditation practice going on, there's 24 hours in a day and your meditation is just one small portion of that. What Gautama Buddha's teachings do with the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, teachings on gamma, the three poisons, the 10 fetters, right on down the line, is it gives you this broader understanding of what you should be doing with the mind on a daily basis. And since this week we're studying cultivating healthy mind states, the Brahma Vaharas of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, these are very good teachings to help you understand part of what you should be doing on a daily basis. So because there's this big misconception that the Buddha sat down under a tree and he meditated for a period of time and wham, he became enlightened, a lot of people think that all they have to do is meditate and they will become enlightened. But what you learn if you're studying the true teachings is meditation is just one component of this life practice that leads to meditation. And it involves right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This eightfold path, understanding each of these steps and how to apply them in life, that is the life practice. And without that, one would never be able to get to enlightenment. Meditation is only one step of the eight. Sometimes I hear about people that are wanting to be silent for like one year or two years or five years or six months. They just want to be silent. They don't want to talk. And they think that this is going to improve the condition of the mind to get to enlightenment. But one aspect of the path is right speech. So how could you, how could you get to enlightenment if you don't understand how to speak and how to talk and how to practice the five factors of well-spoken speech, which is speaking at the right time, what you say is true, speak gently, speak beneficially, speak with a mind of loving kindness without blame. So there's so many more teachings beyond just meditation. But I like to spend you know Wednesday on meditation because it is a vital component. Just like you can't meditate your way to enlightenment with meditation only, you couldn't get to enlightenment without meditation. So just like you can't meditate your way to enlightenment, you can't get to enlightenment without meditation either. So they, they, you really do need meditation as a real dedicated practice 
to train the mind and cultivate these healthy mind states and eliminate certain qualities of mind as well. And I've mentioned this in previous talks about, you know, what really, what is meditation? Meditation is a dedicated, active training session where you're training the mind. I see a lot of times people talk about they're going to go garden and meditate or they're going to go jogging and meditate or walk the dog and meditate. When you're walking the dog, you're walking the dog or you're jogging, you're jogging. And these things are beneficial for you, but that's not meditation. Meditation is a dedicated, active, independent training session where we're either eliminating certain qualities from the mind, which is what we did today, eliminate craving, or you're cultivating certain qualities in the mind, like we do when we do loving kindness meditation. So it's important that you develop this dedicated, consistent meditation practice and do that regularly on a regular daily basis. Yes, um, I had a question about right speech, actually. I think this is good that you brought it up because if we are going around speaking harshly or being dishonest, that's going to impact our meditation practice. Absolutely. It's going to be uh, more conducive to unwholesome thoughts coming around. Yeah, uh, you, you know, we don't see it, right? Like all of us, we've all told lies, right? We've all probably had alcohol and drugs and lots of sex and all the different things that we do in life. And that's part of evolving, right? But eventually we slowly realize that these things aren't going to benefit ourselves. And when we're in those situations where we are using drugs or alcohol or we are lying or I know when I was a kid, I used to steal, you know, stealing and all these things. We don't realize how these things have a direct impact to our life. And we don't realize that the mind holds on. And even though we're lying, the mind becomes so cluttered and so muddled. The Buddha used this word, muddle-minded. The mind becomes so muddled with lies and deceptive speech and speaking harshly to people. We don't see that those choices that we make to do that impact our clarity of mind and our ability to have healthy relationships with people. Because if we understood that these lies and this speech of harshness and, and the way that we do, if we realize that those things cause problems, we wouldn't do them. And that's the whole part of awakening the mind with the Buddhist teachings is the Buddha is helping you to see through the Eightfold Path that if you speak at the wrong time, if you speak with lies, if you speak harshly, if you speak in an unpurposeful or unbeneficial way, if you speak without loving kindness and you blame other people for what's going on in your life, this is going to cause other people harm. So therefore, it's going to cause you harm. So when we learn this through the Buddhist teachings and we awaken to this wisdom, then our practice becomes cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. But when we're doing those things, we don't actually realize what is actually going wrong and that we're actually the ones that are causing this cloudy mind. We're causing this muddle-minded uh, experience. But the beauty in that is that because we're causing it is that we can eliminate it. 
That's the Four Noble Truths, is that we're causing all this discontentness. We're causing the lack of clarity. We're causing the lack of concentration because we're not making good choices to train the mind and move the mind in the direction of enlightenment. But the beauty in the Buddha's teachings and why he was able to help people so much is you can make choices today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day to learn and practice and you see the truth that your mind becomes more and more clear more and more focused, more and more concentrated, more joyful, more peaceful, more calm, more content, more serene. I have a question about purposeful speech. So one factor of right speech is that we should speak with purpose, not useless speech. Mm -hmm. People have different interpretations of that. So I know of monastics who would class that as only ever talking about the teachings, only ever talking about the Dharma, or something useful to help liberate the mind. But then of course, in the, the lay world, that could be a bit limiting. Is there a case for social oil at times, maybe talking about mutual interests or trying to find out if you do have mutual interests? Where do we draw the line with purposeful speech? Where I draw the line is, I know at one time in my life, I was a person who had a lot of idle chatter. I call idle chatter. And I've been around other people who have had a lot of idle chatter, just kind of senseless talk. I think it's helpful to speak to people and get to know people and build relationship. But unpurposeful talk or unbeneficial talk to me is idle chatter. And if you are around people like this or if you've been like this in the past, the way I was, is the mind tends to jump from topic to topic to topic to topic to topic. Like I'm talking to you and the mind just goes, what do you think, Max? Whoa, like where do I even begin? David just talked about five different things there. That's idle chatter or unpurposeful speech or unbeneficial speech. To be beneficial, we need to speak very clear, very direct, very concise. Like Marilyn, this was her first time that she joined. I was like, hi, Marilyn, how are you? Where are you from? Where do you live? You know, oh, you're Max's aunt. Okay, right? So like very purposeful speak. Instead of like, oh, I noticed you have yellow paint there. That's an interesting light switch. Uh, you have blonde hair and you wear glasses. By the way, where do you live? Right, like that's gonna be, that's idle chatter. That's unpurposeful speech. So if I did that, like that would be burdensome for her to listen to somebody like this, it's like burdening her mind to hear somebody bounce around from like three or four or five different topics before I finally maybe ask a question. Whereas if I'm not interested in causing harm when I'm speaking to somebody, I should speak in a way that is unburdensome to you because you're the listener. And if I'm interested in having deep, healthy relationships with people, where we have this mutually beneficial relationship, then I should speak in a way that's unburdensome, that is clear, concise, and direct, and it doesn't require you to have to work really hard to conversate with me. If I'm putting a bunch of stuff, you know, sometimes I used to say like vomit, right? It's like sometimes people talk and they vomit. It's like they're vomiting all this different stuff. If I do that to you, it's going to be very burdensome for you to listen and have a relationship and either a personal relationship or a business relationship. 
You're not going to want to have a personal relationship or a business relationship with somebody that you have to work so hard to communicate with. You want to be able to listen to somebody, understand what they have to say, and then respond. So there should be this kind of like very direct, very purposeful conversation where it's a two-sided conversation and I'm not burdening you to have to work really hard with your mind to try to maintain this conversation. So that's where I look at beneficial speech as a way that is benefiting you, benefiting me, benefiting the people around us. It's very clear. It's very direct. It doesn't involve a bunch of idle chatter or chit chat. And it doesn't require your mind to have to work so hard to engage and have a conversation with me. Got it. Okay. How would you recommend navigating a a conversation where, say, someone is asking you a lot of questions or they're trying to involve you in attachment-based kind of conversation and their, their questions are coming from a place of attachment. Like they really just want to know this thing. Give me the answer to this. Tell me about that. And you know that their their mind is just craving these answers, but it's not something that's actually useful to them. If somebody has a certain craving and they're asking me questions, I'll just answer their question one by one because that's the one of the best ways to help them extinguish their craving is to fulfill it. So if I don't answer the question, they're still going to have the burning desire to actually know the information. So, you know, I just give little piece by piece, piece by piece, and just answer their questions for them. And then what I notice is they'll calm down more and more and more and more and more. They'll start to calm down. I used to do this when I was a business person in America. I would have customers sometimes come out of a massage because I had massage centers and a school and different things and they would come out and they would either be really happy from all the massage that you just got or in rare occasions they might be a little bit disappointed and by me just listening and hearing what they had one by one what hearing what they had to say it kind of actually calmed them down because their craving slowly extinguished but if you just cut them off and you don't let them talk the craving is still there so there's going to be discontentness there So to help this person, sometimes it's best to just let them talk. But there are some rare occasions where maybe I'm teaching a student and they're learning and they want to understand the Buddhist teachings. So if they're talking too much, I may actually let them talk for a while. And then I'll say, okay, let me teach you something about the Buddhist teachings. You need to have purposeful speech. So now that I've let you talk for the last five minutes and you just gave me a lot of information, now I want you to slow down and go back and let's have a a conversation where we can go back and forth. So kind of in my role now, teaching them how to have a purposeful conversation where in my role as a business person, that's not what my goal was. It wasn't to lead them on the path to enlightenment, but it was to help them feel more comfortable talking to me And what you'll notice is that sometimes if you just let people talk a little bit, then that will bring their craving down and they'll get more calm and more centered and they feel closer to you. Like, wow, you just always listen to me, Max. You're just such a, a great business owner. And I would have customers that would show up to their appointments early if they knew that I was at the business because they just wanted to spend time talking with me. And I would sit down on the couch with them and in the waiting room while why they were waiting for their massage. Sometimes they would show up 30 minutes, an hour early just because they wanted to talk and have a conversation. And sometimes I could sit down with them and sometimes I couldn't. But if you have conversations with people, they'll feel better about that. And 
see you as somebody that is willing to to listen, but also by you practicing purposeful speech, they learn how to practice purposeful speech too. Thanks for that. That's definitely going to inform my practice in a significant way. And it's very important what you're getting out here about roles. Uh, Our role is very important to be mindful of how that person perceives us in this conversation. They may not see us as, uh, well, firstly, they may not, not be interested in Buddha's teachings at all. Yes. And even if they are, they might not necessarily regard us as a teacher. So it's very important to be uh, yeah, aware the, of that. Yeah, the more you understand the path, you can actually skillfully lead people on the path without them ever even realizing what you're doing. So you don't have to sit down in a formidable truce, talk with them, or you don't have to sit down and teach them to a full path. The more you understand the path, there's skillful ways to guide people on the path and helping them learn about it without actually sitting down in a very direct eightfold path discussion. Those people aren't going to have as much benefit as somebody that comes to a class like this with the real interest and dedication to learn. But there are some things that you can skillfully help people to improve the more you learn about the path and the more that you see other people being really skillful to share the path with other people without them even realizing you know, that you're sharing it with them. This is why it's also so helpful to have a community, what you might call a sangha or a community of practitioners, because we learn from each other, both what each other are doing well, but also it's reassuring to see that we're all human as well. And, and so we can support each other in that way and, and not come away with like uh, um, attachments to perfection Yeah, that's a good point is, you know, sometimes when people are learning these various teachings from different traditions, we feel like or or sometimes we're made to feel like once the teachings have been shared, you should be immediately able to implement those and you should never do anything that's opposite of those teachings that are being shared, where the Buddha didn't teach this way because he understood that people needed gradual progress. So it was often that he would actually repeat his teachings And you actually see this in the way that I talk. Sometimes when I talk, I'll repeat the same thing two or three times in different ways or over multiple class sessions. I'll repeat the same thing to make sure that you really understand it because we understand there's gradual progress that needs to happen. So when you're learning these teachings, there's no expectation from me on anything, but there's certainly not an expectation that just because I taught you a certain thing, you should be able to implement it right away at that given time and never make a mistake. That's not what these teachings are about because you're going to learn, you're going to digest maybe 10 or 20% of the teachings, implement those, make a few mistakes, but that's going to help you learn some more. And then you're going to make some more mistakes and then you're going to learn some more and you're just gradually, gradually improving your practice, which if I don't have expectations of you, and you don't have expectations of yourself, then essentially you're just on this life journey, developing this life practice where you're gradually learning the teachings, implementing them to see that they're truth in your practice, and then gradually getting results more and more and more where the mind slowly, gradually awakens. So there's not this guilt or shame that you have to do this right now, and if you don't do this, you're a bad person and we're going to judge you and we're going to 
kick you out of our community where that's not the way this works. It's like, okay, we're all in this together. We're all learning. We're all growing. We're all practicing the teachings. So don't have expectations of yourself that you have to be perfect today, but set goals for yourself, set realistic goals for yourself, and just constantly learn and constantly progress along the path, and things will improve more and more and more each day. Thanks, David. That's all of our questions for now. Okay, this is actually a good segues into how I was going to kind of leave today's class is I wanted to share with you guys or I would like to share with you guys whether you've been studying with me for a long time or you've just recently started studying with me or if this is your first time studying with me. Now that you understand breathing mindfulness meditation and you've done one session of this, what I would like to encourage you to do is dedicate yourself for the next 30 days to do breathing mindfulness meditation at least once a day. Just make that dedication, that commitment to yourself so that you can see that the method that I just shared with you, if you implement this, that slowly and gradually the condition of the mind will improve. And if you can just do this once a day, and if you skip a day here or there, it's okay, it's understandable if you forgot it or something, but just dedicate yourself that over the next 30 days, you're gonna do at least one breathing mindfulness meditation per day. And what you're gonna notice is the mind's gonna gradually improve. And if you're currently doing one time, one session of meditation right now, then what I would like you to do is over the next 30 days, do two. So you've already been established, well-established with one session. Now I would like you to expand it to two over the next 30 days. And if you've been doing two sessions of meditation a day, then perhaps you want to add a third one. This is where you're going to get the most benefit. The Buddha did three meditations a day. Okay. So if you can expand your meditation right now, if you're doing no meditation, just over the next 30 days, try to get once a day. If you're already doing once a day, expand that to twice a day. If you're already doing twice a day, expand that to three times a day over the next 30 days. And if you're already doing three times a day at this point, then just make your sessions a little bit longer each time. Because what I would like to really encourage you to do is over the next 30 days, really dedicate yourself to establishing a deeper and deeper, more versed meditation practice. If you can do this, then you're going to for sure see the condition of the mind improve and you're going to see the truth. You're going to see what the Buddha was talking about, about direct knowledge, that the mind's going to continually improve more and more. So I'd like to thank you all for joining me today and choosing to learn and practice Gautama Buddha's teachings. On Sunday, we're going to be exploring true love, learning how to love without attachment. And we'll make sure that we understand what that is because oftentimes people feel that loving without attachment, they feel like that means like you don't care or you don't have affection for people, but that's not true. When you understand what true love is in terms of how to love without craving and desire and attachment, you'll actually get much more fulfilling personal and professional relationships. So 
Once again, thank you for choosing to learn and study Gautama Buddha's teachings. It's the very best thing that you could ever do for your life to eliminate this discontent mind. It's the very best thing you could ever do for yourself to eliminate sadness and frustration and irritation, guilt and shame and fears and loneliness and boredom and jealousy and shyness, resentment. Eliminating this from the mind is the very best thing you could ever do for yourself. And by doing this for yourself, you also benefit those that are closest to you because they're going to experience a much better relationship with you. And then by you doing that, it's going to benefit all of humanity because the more and more you learn and practice these teachings, you're going to be a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content person with joy. You're going to be more friendly, more polite, more kind, more loving, more compassionate. You're going to have more of an even temper, more of calmness and stillness. And this is going to benefit you in your life. And you're going to just get more and more and more results. So continue to work on your meditation practice. I encourage you to continue to expand it more and more. Dedicate yourself over the next 30 days to expanding your meditation practice. Or if you haven't started meditating yet, work on establishing that once a day meditation and then expand from there. So thank you all for joining. I'll see you next time. And until then, Sawadikap, be well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.